pretty cool. We had a great time with your students out there this week. I got to bring my family, actually last week, got to bring my family to go spend uh, some time in the mountains with them, and, and we just had a blast with them. Uh, great week. It was a great week. Uh, as Matt said, my name is Drew, and I work with the Table Campus Ministry in Stillwater. Uh, just want you guys to know I am grateful for the opportunity to be here with you this morning. Uh, but uh, more than that, I am grateful for you and just the partnership that First Church has had with our ministry that allows us to serve and minister to students at OSU and has allowed us to do that for so long. Uh, don't very often get to say it face to face, but we're thankful for you. And I'm particularly thankful this week because, also as Matt mentioned, Zeb took a crew on Friday and Saturday to do a lot of work at the table, painting and shoveling and building and all those things to make it look a lot nicer and, and help it imp uh, improve it for some stuff that we want to do. So uh, I don't normally rank my supporting churches, but right now you guys are in first place. So uh, it's, it was a good, it's been a good summer as far as First Church is concerned with the way that you guys have helped us out. I appreciate it very, very much. Uh, so I want to jump in. Two summers ago, my son Hudson, he, he was six years old at the time, he comes to me and, and asks if he can sign up to play t-ball. Now, Hudson had never played t-ball before. In fact, Hudson had never seen a t-ball game before in his life. But he had some friends that were going to be playing t-ball, including our next-door neighbor, Brady, who's a really good buddy of his. And he came begging to play t-ball and to play on Brady's team if possible. At first, my wife Amy and I, we were a little kind of unsure. Registration had been going for some time. Teams were already formed. People were starting to practice already. It was kind of late in the game, uh, but, but he kept begging, and so finally we decided, you know what, we'll do this. So we go, and on the very last day of registration, we went and we got Hudson signed up to play. Like I said, practices were already going. In fact, Hudson's team didn't have any more practices left. There was only one week until his very first game was about to, to be played. And so I realized in this moment as his dad that it is my responsibility to have Hudson prepared for his first game. He's not going to get to go to practice, so it's on me to make sure that he goes out there and doesn't, you know, completely embarrass himself when he's out on the field. So we go out, we buy a cheap glove, and we go to our backyard, and we start throwing the ball around. And, and my goal over these next seven days, I decide, is to teach Hudson at least these three basic things. I want him to know the basics. I want him to know how to throw a ball. I want him to know how to catch, and I want him to know how to hit. So we start working on that throw, catch, and hit. That's, if, I, if I can get that in him, then, then maybe he'll at least be able to kind of hold his own a little bit out there on the ball field. So we go out there. We start throwing a ball back and forth, playing catch. We're not at it like five, maybe ten minutes before Hudson looks at me and he goes, you know what, Dad, I don't want to do this. And I said, whoa, no, son, listen, you, you said that you wanted to do this. You begged your mom and I to do this. We already signed you up. We already paid the money. We're, we're doing this, son. We're doing this. And he said, no, Dad, I told you I wanted to play t-ball. I said, buddy, this is t-ball. And he said, what? So when do I get my racket? And I realized, oh, no, he thinks t-ball is tennis. And he did, he did not even know what sport he was signing up for when he begged to play t-ball with his 
friend Brady. And so it starts to come to me, man, we have got our work cut out for us. We, we've got a lot of work to do, but we kept at it. We were throwing, we were catching, we were hitting. I'm trying to show him the, the proper form in throwing and how to hold a bat and all of those basic things to get him ready. And then finally the day comes and we, we show up there to the ball fields. Hudson and I were about 10 minutes early, so there's another game going on on the field before his. And so Hudson and I, we stop there and, and we just watch for a little bit. And after about a couple minutes, this kid who's up to bat, he gets a hit, and he takes off running for first base. Hudson kind of leans over to me. He's like, hey, Dad, what's he doing? And I said, he's running to first base. And then Hudson turns to me, and he goes, what's first base? And in that moment, my eyes grew wide, and it dawns on me, I never told him about first base or second base or any of the bases. I didn't tell him about outs or strikes or balls or innings or outfield or in. I didn't tell him. I was so caught up with teaching him these basics, throw, catch, hit, that I told him nothing else about the game of baseball and what you're supposed to do once you catch the ball and where you're supposed to throw it and what you do after you hit. And so now I remember looking down at my phone, and I've got now five minutes to explain the entire game of baseball to a six-year-old before he steps out on the field for the very first time. Now, baseball's not a crazy complicated sport. It's fairly simple. But have you ever tried to explain it to a six-year-old in five minutes before he plays the game of baseball for the very first time? It's not an easy task. And needless to say, Hudson's first outing on the ball field was just a, a tad bit rough. Uh, but, but the good news for Hudson uh, is that there's a lot of kids in his same situation. And it was kind of rough for everybody. You've seen t-ball games before, right? It's just chaos the entire time. You've got one kid hits, and then all nine players on the field are just running like an amoeba after the ball. Actually, usually it's eight, and then there's one kid out in the outfield playing with bugs or right laying down and looking at airplanes, and, and kids are hitting the ball and just standing there, and so coaches or parents are going, run, run, and they start running towards third base the wrong way, and, and it's just kids don't know what they're doing. They've been told these things about how they're supposed to hit a ball and catch it, but, but they don't know what that has to do with the rest of the game. They don't know how that all ties in and the, the purpose of it all, and so it looks just crazy out there. Here's what I want to propose to you this morning. That there are a lot of people, a lot of Christians, whose lives look a lot like six-year-old boys playing t-ball for the first time. That is, a lot of Christians know the basics of the Christian life. They know the things that they're supposed to do to live a good Christian life. They know that there's certain things they're supposed to do. They're supposed to be kind. They're supposed to be loving. They're supposed to be a good person. Uh, they, they know that there are certain practices that they're supposed to engage in. They're supposed to go to church supposed to be the kind of dad who takes his family to church on Sunday mornings. They're, they're supposed to read their Bible and to pray. And, of course, they know that as a Christian, there are certain things they're not supposed to do. As a high schooler, they're not supposed to sleep with their boyfriend or girlfriend until they're married. They're not supposed to go out and get drunk, or, or, or they're not supposed to cuss, or, or, or whatever those things are. They've, they've got all these things that they know they should and shouldn't do. They, they even have the right beliefs about God and Jesus and, and how to be saved and all of those things. But if you were to stop and ask a whole lot of people, I think, why it is that they do those things, 
Why is it that you engage in those practices? You get up and go to church every Sunday. Why is it that you don't do these things that a lot of other people do? Why is it that you try to do all these other things, however hard it may be? I think a lot of people, a lot of people in churches, sitting in pews every Sunday, would struggle to give you a very good answer for that. I don't know. Uh, because, because if I do these things, that's what makes me a good Christian. Um, because, because that's what I'm supposed to do, because uh, for kids, because it makes my parents happy, kind of keeps them off my back if I do these things. I don't get in trouble, or, or maybe for some husbands, it keeps my wife happy. We get up and go to church together. We pray before dinner uh, when we eat. Uh, maybe you were told that you know, if, you'll, if you'll do these things, if you'll engage in these practices as a Christian, then life will be better. Marriage will work better. Your kids will grow up to do what they ought to do. And, and, and maybe even the Lord will kind of bless you as you seek to follow him. But, but if you start to look around enough, if you start to think about it enough, there are times in your life when you realize it doesn't seem like it's making my life better. Sometimes actually it seems like it's making my life just harder more tiring, more exhausting as I run around trying to do all this stuff and then I end up feeling guilty for not doing more stuff or not doing the stuff that I'm supposed to do. And, and my neighbor, he's not trying to do all this stuff and he's not waking the kids up on Sunday morning and fighting that battle to get to church. They're, they're going out to the lake and, and things seem to be working fine for them. And you, you begin to wonder, you would never say this out loud, but there are people, I think, who are sitting in church every Sunday wondering sometimes, is all of this really worth it? I'll give you the answer for that. You ready? It's not. It's not worth it. The Christian life, divorced from the Christian story, is not worth it. And that gets to the heart of the issue. The reason there are a lot of people running around knowing all the basics of the Christian life. They know throw, catch, hit, but they don't see what it all has to do with everything, what, where the purpose is, because so many people do not fully understand the story behind it all. They don't get the story of God, and they don't get their part in it. The very story that brings meaning to all of those things that they're supposed to be doing or not doing, to all those practices that we engage in, the very thing that makes sense of it all, that brings purpose to the Christian life, they don't grasp it. They don't see how it all ties together. They don't get this. I like what Tim Keller says. He says that most people, when they think of the Bible, they think of it as one long list of rules with some stories sprinkled in to illustrate, you know, to kind of help Sunday school lessons be a little bit easier to teach. So the, actually, the, the reality is that it's just the opposite, that this is actually one long story with some rules sprinkled in to illustrate. And that story that is told in this book is the most amazing and deep and fascinating story that has ever been told. It's a story that spans thousands of years and 40 different authors. It's written in three different languages and multiple cultures. It's a story that has hundreds of little mini-stories that all weave together into one giant story. And that giant story has within it the capacity to hold every story of all 7 billion people on the planet. That story 
is the glory of God. It is the hope of mankind. It is the lifeblood of the church. It is the purpose of every single person in this room, and the world has nothing else like it. Nothing but dim reflections and cheap imitations and shadows. And it was our goal last week for your students that they would know the story of God, not just know some facts about it, but that they would know it and that they would know their part in it so that they might be changed by it, so that it would bring life and sense and purpose to following Jesus. But let me tell you, that's not just a goal for a week of high school camp. That ought to be the goal of the Christian life. That we're not just living and doing certain things, but we're living based out of the story that God has given us, the story of himself. That story unfolds in four major acts, four major movements, and then we added a fifth one as kind of an epilogue at Youthquake. It goes like this, creation. In the beginning, God created all things for his joy and for his glory. Second is the fall, that sin entered into the world, disrupting and bringing disorder and chaos to God's beautiful creation, including human beings. Third, redemption, that God is at work through his son, Jesus Christ, to redeem and reconcile all things back to himself. And last, restoration, that God is now at work through the Holy Spirit, starting in his church, to restore all things and make things new the way they ought to be. That fifth one we added is mission, that you and I are called to live out the story by drawing more people into it. Today, I just want to talk to you about the first one. Creation, because this is the one in which we are introduced to the main character. This is the one that lays the groundwork for everything else in the story. So I just want to talk to you briefly about that and then hopefully maybe give you a nudge or an encouragement that from there you will seek out to, to see how this book all ties together into one grand story and your part in it. Genesis 1 is where we're going to be today. If you've got your Bibles, Genesis 1 starting in verse 1. This is what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is where we start. This is the foundational truth that will set the stage for everything else that we would want to talk about in the story. This truth makes sense of everything else. That in the beginning, there was nothing but God. Many people only make it like one sentence into that story before they start to get off, before they start to go wrong with how it works. Uh, This is the way I always believed it growing up, that God was sitting there one day in heaven, and he was kind of lonely and, you know, kind of needed something that's a little bit bored. So he decided to create the universe. And in that, he created human beings so that they could be in fellowship and relationship with him and worship him. And so that's what he did. But that idea is nowhere found in Genesis 1, and it's nowhere found in the rest of Genesis, and it's nowhere else in the entire book. For starters, God is not sitting somewhere in heaven. Heaven did not exist until God told heaven to exist. 
It's not just some place where he lives. He's not dwelling out in the far recesses of space. Space itself, the universe, as vast and expansive as it is, is not enough to hold God. It doesn't exist until he tells it to. And even when he does tell it to, it's small enough to fit in the palm of his hand. That's how great and large he is. The second thing that's wrong with that idea that God is up in heaven, lonely and creating, is that there is no loneliness in God. God didn't have some unfulfilled need in him, and that's why he created us. No, as Christians, we believe in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, dwelling together in perfect unity and harmony and joy and community for all of creation. There's no lack inside of them that goes, man, we really need something here. So then why did God create The answer is simple. He creates out of abundance of his joy and for his glory. That's why he creates. Jonathan Edwards, this famous 18th century theologian, and and Jonathan Edwards writes that God was like a fountain that is so full, so large that it is prone to overflow. And the, the glory of God overflowing, the joy of God spilling out, that is what brings creation into existence. The next verse goes on to say this, Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. Now, we're not going to read the whole chapter today. But what you need to know is that pattern that we just read, where God creates something, brings it into existence, and then he takes the raw materials and he makes out of it beauty and order so that it is good, that pattern plays out over and over again in Genesis 1. That's what we see, and that's the kind of God that we worship, a God who reaches into disorder and chaos and brings order and beauty and life out of it. But the thing that's most important to catch this morning as we're moving on is simply this, that God speaks and it happens. That with a word of his mouth, he brings mountains and molecules into existence, galaxies and gnats, alligators and zebras. Everything that exists or has ever existed owes its existence to God. Um, when I was preparing this message for Youthquake, this was the point at which I stopped and spent the most amount of time. Because my goal for them was to try and give the students an adequate sense of the beauty and glory of creation. I kept thinking, how can I do that? How can I instill in them a sense of awe over all that God has done? And so I was working, I was bringing out all these videos that I was going to show them, and I had these object lessons with these ping pong balls, and I had all these statistics I wanted to throw out there trying to figure out how can I get them to see it, how amazing God's creation is. And then it was like I had this voice whisper into my head. I'm not sure if it was God or not because it called me a dummy, so I'm, I'm hoping that wasn't God. But the voice said, hey, dummy you realize you're going to be preaching a sermon from the side of a mountain, right? And I I realized in that moment that I had been wasting all my time because there's no video that I could possibly show to them that was going to be able to compare with the beauty they got to see all week long. That they got to look out over these mountainous landscapes that we, we take pictures of and we bring back and it never does it justice, right? That artists work their whole life to try and recreate and they can't do it. 
We walked amongst aspen trees and fir trees that towered hundreds of feet over our heads, rafted down crystal clear waters through these beautiful gorges, looked out at the sky at night, a sky filled to the brim with stars. And some of those stars, realize it or not, being so large and glorious that they have the capacity within them to hold the earth inside of them 263 trillion times over. And the God that we're describing here in Genesis 1 just breathes things like that out. The mountain that took us hours to climb breathes it out. Stars so large to hold the earth in it millions of times over just breathes those things out. This is what Isaiah 40 says. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings forth the starry host one by one and calls them each by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. That's the kind of God described in Genesis 1. And I'm only talking about the kinds of things you can see. I'm not even talking about all the parts of creation that we can't see. All the tiny little insects and the invisible microorganisms all around us that make the ecosystem work without ourselves even realizing it. You know, it is said that when you go out into the forest, in just the top inch of forest soil alone, that there are roughly 340 different animals under the area that your footprint covers. Which means, I was able to share to... uh, to the students that on mountain day when we hiked six miles that those students each tread on roughly three and a half million creatures that day without even realizing it, without even knowing it. But God does because the God who creates stars too big for me to comprehend also makes organisms too small for me to see and even know about. Colossians 1 says that the Father, through Jesus Christ, his Son, created all things, visible and invisible, and that he holds it all together. The very God holding the stars in place is also sustaining molecules and organisms all around us. It's the same God who knows the number of hairs on your head, and when a sparrow falls to to the ground, he is the God of both big and small. Uh, As I think about it, there are just two major implications from that truth that we ought to know. The first is this, that God is absolutely glorious and worthy of every ounce of worship that we could ever give him. He is deserving of all these things. This is how it is put in Revelation 4.11. When the 24 elders fall down before the throne of God, they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. The second thing we need to realize about a God like this is that since he made everything, he is king over everything. If you made it, you own it. It's that simple. And because he made all things, he owns all things, including you and I. It all belongs to him. So I talked to you for just a second about the giant and large things that God has made. And we talked for just a second about the very small and tiny things that God has made. Now I want to talk to you for just a moment or two about the most important thing that God has made. The most impressive and beautiful and majestic thing that God has ever made. And for this one, I had to bring a picture. I could not adequately convey to you in words the incredible majesty of this kind of creation. So I brought a picture to show to you, if we can bring that up there. There it is right there. Behold the majesty. Now, 
For those of you who may not be, be quite familiar with who that good-looking guy is right there, that is me in ninth grade, rocking the sweetest chili bowl haircut you've ever seen in your life. Most people, when they get to about eighth or ninth grade, they get a growth spurt. Um, I got that, but the only part that really got it was my teeth. So my, my teeth got a growth spurt. The rest of my body hadn't really caught up with it yet. Um, and and, and uh, needless to say, ninth grade was a little bit rough for me. Uh, I was every bit as cool as I look in that picture. And so, so things were a little bit hard. But, you know, we all have our awkward phases. I get that. I, I wanted to bring this to show it to you because I thought it would be fun. But also there's, there's a point I want to make. But I did think more than just showing a picture of me, because that's really fun to show a picture of me, it'd be even more fun to show some sweet pictures of your staff here um, in that same phase. So I want to do that for you real quick. Let me see the next one here. This is Tyler. Uh, doing, but before he was a worship leader, he was doing something at a kitchen table there. Um, I want to give me another one here. James, looking good there. He didn't have as cool a hair as I did back then. But I like that. I like the, uh, the shell necklace there. Give me, give me the, next, the next two. This, <laughs> this is Matt, I think. Is this you, Matt? That's Matt. <laughs> that is awesome. Okay, dude, you win. You got a better bowl cut than I did, dude. Definitely. I, <laughs> I love the double picture. All right, I think we got one more. Let me see. There's Matt again. There you go, growing up looking nice, and Chad with Mickey Mouse. <laughs> I did not get a, a chance to see these beforehand. I just heard that they were going to be there, so that is amazing. All right, I, I show you these pictures. I show you these pictures because, believe it or not, the goofballs in those pictures right there are far more impressive than any mountain or ocean or galaxy that God has ever made, and it's not even close. It's not even close. That there is something within human beings that is more incredible than all of those things. And it's not because of the complexity of our structure, the human eye, or the human brain. It's because of something that God has placed inside of you and inside of me. For this, I want you to turn to the end of Genesis 1, verses 26 and 28. Or 26 through 28 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. In our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we see here, he says that we, what makes us important, what makes you significant is the fact that the image of God has been placed in you. And Mount Everest cannot say that. And the Milky Way galaxy cannot say that, that you have the very image of the one who breathes all things into existence. That image is in you. Now, there's been a lot of talk um, over the years about what that means to have the image of God in you. And this is a really important question because the way we answer that, this is where your story begins to intersect with God's story. 
This is where your story weaves into the story when you begin to understand what it means to be made in God's image. And so all these theories have risen up. Well, to be made in the image of God means that we're creative like God is. Or it means that we're relational like God is. Or it means that we are um, logical, thinking, rational beings like God is. I think all of those may touch on some truth of this. But, but I think it goes deeper than this. And I think you can see it in the text. I, I would break down what it means to be an image bearer into these three things. Three R words that I will give you to maybe help you remember. The first is this. To be made in the image of God means that you represent him. Or another word you might use is you might reflect him. That is, you were designed, just like a mirror is an image of something else, that when you look at that mirror or when you look at a picture of something, it is a representation of, a reflection of the real thing. And so people ought to look at your life. You were designed for this, that they would look at you and they would see the character of God in you. That they would see God's love and his goodness and his holiness and his beauty by looking at you. They ought to be able to go that is what God is like. The second thing we see is that um, you were designed to rule over God's creation on his behalf, to care for it. This is what he says. Let us make mankind in our image and give him dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and everything that walks on the ground. We are called to care for and cultivate and bring order and beauty to God's creation around us, including other human beings, just like God does. Lastly, to be made in God's image means that like no other part of creation, you were designed to to relate to God, to be in relationship with him. And we see this, that Adam and Eve engage in conversation with God, that they walk with God in the cool of the day. They walk through the garden with him. You were made to know him and to love him. I work with college students for a living. And college students are in this phase of life where they are kind of right between childhood and adult. And they're they're walking in and trying to plan out what their life is going to be. And so students I work with, they're in this phase where they get a lot of advice from people about how to look to the future. Most of that advice is cliche, hallmark, garbage advice. Things like dream big, whatever that means. Uh, shoot for the stars, however cheesy that may be, or this one, follow your heart. You know, as you try to figure out what you're supposed to do in life, just follow your heart, which is ridiculous advice because the Bible tells us that our hearts are deceitful, that we follow our feelings. It leads us in, into all kinds of trouble, but they get all kinds of advice. There's this one that I always thought was really bad and really cliche. It goes like this, be true to yourself. Be true to who you are. Don't try to be other people. Be yourself. And I always thought that that was really silly and dumb advice. I've started realizing recently, though, that actually the advice itself is pretty good. The problem with the advice is that nobody knows who they are. We tell them to be who they are. They don't know. High school students, it's said, are in this phase of life where they're trying to determine what their identity is. They're trying to kind of carve out an identity separate from their parents, sort of separate from their peers, but sort of along with their peers, trying to determine who they are. And and psychologists will tell you this is an important part of development. What they don't tell you, what they fail to say, is that that never really goes away in human beings. That adults are just as much clamoring for an identity as kids are. They just do it in more grown-up, respectable ways. Like becoming a workaholic so I can be successful. Like trying to be the best mom and making sure everybody knows that on Facebook and Instagram. 
like trying to get the nicest house or living vicariously through my kids and their success. We're all still running after our own identities. This is why middle-aged men go through what we call a midlife crisis where they step away from all their responsibilities and say silly things like, I just need to go find myself. Or you hear people talk about, you know, I'm really on a journey of self-discovery right now. Do you hear what's happening? The world keeps saying to people, just be true to who you are. And somewhere deep down inside every human heart, there's this voice that keeps crying out, I don't know who that is. Of course you don't know who that is. How can a person know who they are if they do not know the God in whose image they were made? You want to know who you are? You want to know what your life is supposed to be about? You want to know what your purpose is? Then make it your aim to know the God who made you and designed you for his joy and for his glory. Make it your aim to know the God who you were designed to be in relationship with, whose character you were designed to reflect. That is where you will find who you are. That is where you will find who your pur- or what your purpose is and what you ought to be doing. This is what you were made for. And this is what he deserves from us. We pleaded with your students last week. We pleaded with them that they would know the story of God that they would love the story of God, that they would be changed by the story of God, and that they would find their place in it. I want to plead that with you this morning as well. This is all the time I have for you, but I hope you know this, that the God that's described in this story is worth it. He is worth knowing. And the story that he has called you into is worth knowing and it is worth living. And my heart for you and myself is that we would be people who know it, who are changed by it, and who live it out. Let me pray that for you, and we'll be done. Dear God, I pray and ask your Holy Spirit to do the rest, that you would begin to move in us with a greater hunger to know your word, what it says about you, and all that you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And that that truth would come in and radically change us and move us to live a life that brings you glory and brings us joy. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen.